Hello, and welcome to Activating Sustainability, the Anthesis podcast. I'm your host, Chris Peterson. We hope that you are all well. We're recording this in mid-March with the Ukraine conflict in full force, so our thoughts are with those facing unimaginable circumstances in the region and globally. Interestingly, our topic for today, water, in recognition of World Water Day on March 22nd, often sits at the very core of conflicts and geopolitical posturing, also flowing through our lives and organizations almost completely ignored and certainly underappreciated. To help elevate our awareness and understanding of this key resource, I'm really pleased to be joined by a number of Anthesis experts, including Chris Morris, community manager based in the UK, Therese Karkowski, our water practice lead, and Dave Jekyll, senior water consultant. Thank you all so much for joining the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Good to be here. Thanks. Hi, Chris. Hi, everyone. Yeah, great to be here and chat with you about this today. Wonderful. Maybe to kick us off. I mean, water is one of those things that we all see, but often don't think very much about. So curious, kind of maybe to jump in. What are the key risks and issues that you see around water? And then we can start to unpack some other elements. That's a fantastic question, and I appreciate we're short on time, so can't really kind of go into everything in sort of the nth degree because there's so much to unpack there. But essentially, you think about our everyday lives, it's so important to everything we do, everything that surrounds us. You know, if you think about we need it to keep ourselves clean, we need to drink, it's fundamental to how we prepare our food. It's fundamental to how we grow our food and all of the other different things that sort of underpin modern life from, you know, the clothes that we wear, the electricity that is generated, that powers our lives, to the vehicles that move us from place to place. Everything relies on water to a greater or lesser extent. To follow up on that, water is really important in our daily lives now, too, because we're running out of it. So by 2030, there's a projected global gap between supply and demand of 40%. Basically, there's kind of a timeline, and we're working towards that goal. A lot of the water use in the world is going towards agriculture. Agricultural withdrawals are kind of a big portion of that big supply-demand gap. And there's a lot of work to be done with irrigation efficiencies, water efficiencies, things like that. Basically, we're running out of water and globally, we're working towards meeting that gap. Cool. And I often hear the term like water stewardship, especially in the context of like corporate sustainability. Could you maybe talk a little bit about what does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. So water stewardship is basically a framework and set of principles that promotes socially and culturally equitable and environmentally sustainable and economically beneficial use of water. And it's done through a stakeholder inclusive process at the watershed level. It's tied very closely to the UN Sustainable Development Goal 6, which is clean water and sanitation. So basically this framework helps businesses understand and manage their water risks and also find new opportunities related to water that they can focus on. And then in terms of risks for business and why it's so important, we generally talk about physical risk, regulatory risk, and reputational risk. So physical risk, that's basically, does my company have enough water? Or is there too much? Are there flooding impacts? Or is there scarcity with relation to drought or, or so on and so forth? When we talk about regulatory risk, we're talking about governance practices and that sort of thing often include pricing and in that as well. And then in terms of reputational risk, that's definitely a oftentimes perceived use of water or a brand reputational issue in that respect. 
So I guess I'll dive in a little bit deeper there and talk about risks and water sustainability and how addressing risks can help companies improve their stewardship. So basically addressing water stewardship issues can help in terms of reducing costs. Although water is not valued appropriately, some of the reduction measures can pay for themselves. The big thing is ensuring your license to operate. So basically by incorporating those water stewardship practices like showing to the local community that you have a right to be there and you can maintain your permits within regulations. It's a good way to protect yourself from operational disruptions. And also you can gain competitive advantage and boost brand value. And then finally, you can also show your investors that you're actually in this for the long term and your business is viable for the long term. That's great. I think really helpful. And it's interesting, I know in the conversations I've had with individuals is that struggle, like you said, kind of that reduced cost and the cost of water and the way that we value it. It feels like those risks are so high versus the cost side of it. That is this challenge of how do you implement reductions while recognizing that that return isn't there, but that you're mitigating those long-term risks. And I often find organizations are stuck between those two and that we kind of take water for granted. Yeah, if I can just jump in there, I think something that's just really important sort of highlight is that historically, when these businesses have thought about the cost of water, it has been very much that financial cost, like how much does it cost me to use X number of litres or gallons? And that's sort of been very much in sort of the mind of, you know, finance and operations teams. But increasingly, as we get into a world where the water resources that we have are getting more and more scarce and the quality of the water that we do have is declining, is that you can't just think about it in those that kind of very narrow way. You kind of have to think about it in terms of, okay, what is the cost of my business if I don't have enough water or that the water I have is of insufficient quality or that the water that we've used and we're discharging back into the environment is polluted and what are the consequences, you know, not only for the other water users in, you know, that uh, our catchment or watershed, but to Teresa's point earlier, you know, thinking about those reputational regulatory risks as well that you could potentially fall foul of. So can't just think about it as the cost of my license to take however many thousands of litres or gallons from borehole or river or through the taps. We need to sort of businesses need to think about this much more broadly and holistically. Great point. And my impression is, and I imagine it drives me nuts, and I'm just on the periphery, for all of you deeply embedded in the water space, it's got to be maddening how little attention it gets. And I know we're recording this around World Water Day, and maybe curious to hear some of your thoughts, maybe Dave, you kicking us off in terms of what is World Water Day and kind of what is it about this year? Yeah, definitely. And also just to follow up on Chris's point, I think that holistic view of water is really important because if you compare water to energy and from a bottom line perspective, megawatts don't compare to gallons. Water is heavily subsidized. It's undervalued in relation to energy. So that comparison doesn't really hold weight. The holistic view is definitely the way to go. All the challenges, all the benefits, that's a really important thing to note. So to your question, Chris, about World Water Day, World Water Day is held on March 22nd every year, and it's a United Nations observation that started in 93, and it basically raises awareness of Sustainable Development Goal 6, which Therese touched on earlier, water and sanitation for all by 2030, and it's one of 17 Sustainable Development Goals. 
awareness around SDG six is really important because as of 2020, billions of people around the world still don't have access to clean water and sanitation. And these are basic human rights. We have technology, we have all these things in the world, but we still don't have access to basic human rights, which is an important thing to note on World Water Day. Every World Water Day has a theme. This year's theme is groundwater. And previous themes in 2021 were valuing water. Water and climate change was a subject for 2020. And in 2019, it was leaving no one behind. So touching on groundwater, this year's theme is basically water that's found underground in aquifers, which are underground reservoirs, essentially. And they feed springs, rivers, lakes, and wetlands. And they gradually make their way and seep into the ocean. And groundwater is recharged typically through rain and snow falling and infiltrating into the ground. And it's extracted for human use through pumps and wells. It's important because a lot of people throughout the world rely on groundwater as their single source of water, primarily in arid areas. So arid areas won't have access to surface water supplies like rivers, lakes, and reservoirs, and they'll just pump directly from the ground. So there'll be a gap between supply and then a reservoir that they directly withdraw from. And it also feeds really sensitive aquatic ecosystems like wetlands and lakes and provides habitat for a variety of species. It's a really critical portion of the water we use for irrigation and just a lot of farmers and agriculture relies exclusively on groundwater. Yeah, and just to build on that a little bit, if I may, that within groundwater, there are two different subsets or two different types. You have renewable groundwater. So this is what gets replenished over time from snow melt and rainfall. And then you have non-renewable groundwater sources, which sometimes you'll hear them referred to as fossil aquifers. These are groundwater resources that they have either built up over a hugely long period of time, sort of talking tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years, or they are relics from when the environment was different. There may have been wetlands. So a great example of fossil aquifer is what you find underneath a desert in Australia. It doesn't rain enough there for that to get recharged. That is a relic of past climate in uh, Australia and a huge amount of water has been locked up there. And I think it's important to sort of think about in places such as the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia, a lot of their water comes from these non-renewable sources. And once it's gone, it's gone there is no getting it back, not in the span of kind of human civilization anyway. So it's not just a case of we're using them faster than they're being replenished. In some cases, we're using them and then there will be nothing. Well, yeah, I imagine water feels like one of those invisible resources that you know we just take for granted. Groundwater, given what you've laid out, it needs a really good marketing, branding, organization behind it. So how is water being viewed? you know, in the various regions, maybe hearing, I don't know, Dave, if you want to kick off from a North American perspective, and I know Therese, it seems like every time I, I see you are in a different part of the world, so we'd love your thoughts from a global perspective. And then Chris, really thinking from the UK, it'd be interesting to hear pair of contrast. Yeah, sure. So at a high level, water in the US, we typically view two main issues. There's water supply, and there's basically water scarcity issues in the Western US. So that's California, that's Arizona, Nevada, a lot of these Western states. And then on the East, we have water quality issues. So that's basically the Eastern seaboard in the middle of the US. A lot of that is from nutrification, from agriculture and other issues like that. I think it's worth looking at 
maybe two main watersheds in the U.S. So Colorado River, which supplies a huge amount of water, about 40 million people across the West. And basically that whole watershed is completely over allocated. So they have more water that's promised to users than is currently provided by the river. Historically, they've been able to meet demand, but the last 22 year period has been the driest in recorded history in the Colorado River Basin. So climate change impacts are really exacerbating water stress and the two main reservoirs in the Colorado River system, Lake Powell and Lake Mead, have dropped to levels where for the first time in history, basically allocations for certain downstream users like Arizona, Nevada, they're taking significant water cuts. So good example of water scarcity in the West. In the East, you have the Mississippi watershed or the Midwest. And that's one of the largest watersheds in the world. It's one of the hubs of agribusiness production throughout the US and supplies a lot of the world as well. But because there's a lot of farming, there's basically nutrification and a lot of nutrients that are applied to various crops. And when you apply nitrogen and phosphorus too much to a given piece of farmland, it gradually seeps into local rivers. So the Mississippi is heavily polluted and the water quality issue is basically threatening the water supply of a lot of municipalities that rely on that water. There's also downstream flooding issues as well, historically from basically over-engineering and cities that have been grouped together in areas where there's been flooding in the past. And Chris, is that similar to the UK or? Yeah, in many respects it is. You know, we're battling with or facing the same challenges and situations, not on the same sort of scale. The UK is a very small place, but to try and make this, a, I suppose, a little bit more relevant, sort of provide a European perspective on this. And where Dave has sort of outlined that East-West split in terms of what the main challenges are, in Europe, we historically used to have very much more of a North-South split. So in the North, where there was a lot more industry, you know, water quality issues were the main concern. And then in the South, especially around the Mediterranean basin, it was around water scarcity and water stress. But water didn't really feature too much in sort of the, the minds of governments, probably until the start of the 21st century. And, you know, that has basically been as a result of sort of water scarcity and water stress issues now affecting a lot more of what is sort of termed Central and Western Europe. I mean, to think that 20% of the land mass in any given year is affected by water stress issues, and that's 30% of the European population is equally sort of affected. This is affecting areas that are critical for agriculture, manufacturing, and energy generation. And there's also areas where there are huge population centers as well. So it's rapidly rising up the agenda. And it's a very similar story sort of around the world that, you know, a lot of these increases certainly in water stress and some of the quality issues are essentially driven by supply and demand imbalance. What we're seeing in Europe is that the supply is going down and this is being exacerbated by a change in climate. And whilst demand is falling, it's not falling fast enough to offset the decline in supply. And when there are sort of, you know, years when there is above average rainfall or kind of snow melt, 
it's taking a long time for that water to find its way through the ground and to replenish these groundwater resources, which a lot of Europe sort of depends upon, because it is certainly in Europe, the go-to source for municipal water, especially for drinking water. And agriculture is a big user of water in Europe. And if we sort of think about some of the key agricultural areas, you get the greatest pressure on water resources, usually when they have the lowest level of availability. So if you think in the summer, if when it's hot and it's dry, and especially if there's a drought, that you know farmers are going to be looking for increased amounts of water for irrigation to sustain their crops. And you know if it's been hot and dry and hasn't rained in a while, the river levels and the lakes are going to be low. So people are going to groundwater. So that resource is what really, really kind of gets tapped into in times when other water resources, you know, there's less availability. So they're kind of getting hit by a double whammy in terms of, you know, these resources are coming under increasing pressure at the times when they have their least availability. We're quite lucky in Europe that we have something called sort of the Water Framework Directive, which is basically all about achieving sustainable water use and maintaining sort of the quality of aquatic ecosystems. You look at it, it's it's not perfect, but it's a really, really good piece of legislation. However, you know, the implementation of this has been mixed across the various different countries in Europe. And, you know, the progress with implementing it has been sort of a little bit slow. Now, Whilst there has been some decoupling, as I'd sort of illustrated earlier, between economic growth and water consumption, that link is not yet fully broken. So although we're starting to sort of see the right things and are happening, there's still an awful long way to go until we kind of achieve this sustainable water use. I was just going to jump in and then talk a little bit more from a global perspective. So basically, water quantity is an issue in most places. So there's parts of Europe, parts of Middle East, Asia, Africa, Australia, all have water quantity issues. But what I think is also really interesting to dissect is the difference between developed and developing countries and how in developing countries, water pollution is often a bigger concern because they don't have regulations in place that dictate you know, your water discharge concentrations and so on. Other issues with respect to developing countries is often corruption issues. With corrupt governments, then there's the governance framework in place that is needed to properly manage water resources. And then finally, there's also the issue of transboundary water issues. And so if you're relying on upstream water, particularly if it's an upstream source that's located in a different country, then there can often be conflicts over that as well. Yeah, we've seen a lot of that in certainly in places like the Himalayas, where there are disputes between users upstream and downstream. A great example of that is in Africa and the dams that Ethiopia is building along the Nile and the unhappiness, shall we say, that Egypt has with this because, you know, it's a huge agricultural producing country and it's seeing its potential for, you know, the flows that it receives down the Nile being greatly impacted by this, let alone the cities they've built on the Nile Delta potentially falling into the Mediterranean because there's not going to be that same sediment flow to maintain the deltas. I mean, there are countless examples, but it's worth flagging a few of those. Yeah, that can only end well. You know, I think that I always try to think about like the positive aspects within these podcasts, but feels like we always, once we dig into it, it's like, oh, these are pretty monumental challenges to take on. So maybe pivoting a little bit to like, how should organizations be thinking about how do they pull themselves and their value chains out of that kind of spiral that we're in? 
maybe, Therese, do you want to kick us off with that? Yeah, I'll jump in with that. So basically, the typical corporate water stewardship journey that we see with our clients is a cycle of four phases that are repeated for continuous improvement. So the first one is water footprinting and accounting. So that is basically how much water is my company using? How much water is my supply chain using? And also, you know, all the way through downstream use and end of life. So what's your water quantity and water quality footprint in a sense? So then after doing that, then we do water risk assessments. So where am I exposed to water risk? Because if you don't tie that water consumption to that risk, then it's pretty meaningless because water withdrawn in a very abundant water resource area has completely different risks than water withdrawn in an area that has very little water. So mapping those water risks at both a basin level, and we also recommend doing it at a local or operational level as well and really, really diving in. And then the next phase would be around target setting. And so creating meaningful context-based water targets to reduce risks, improve business value, contribute to sustainable development goals, and so on. The big piece there is we strongly recommend the context-based approach. So considering the characteristics of the watershed that you're in when setting those targets. And then finally, the fourth phase is implementation. So how do you achieve your goals? What do you need to do? What type of water restoration projects can you work on to add water to the water cycle in order to achieve those targets? Great. That really helps in terms of like the how. And then maybe... Chris, do you want to talk a little bit about the why, if it's not abundantly clear yet in terms of this conversation? What are some of the like core pieces of the business case that you all are conveying to people? Yeah, water stewardship, it's about helping businesses sort of think beyond their bottom line and their operations. It's sort of thinking about how do they want to be seen by their peers and the communities in which they operate and their value chain operates. Do they want to be seen as somebody who is just you know, making use of this resource but putting nothing back? Or do they want to actually be seen as a custodian of that water and a steward of that water? And how do they want to be kind of, you know, seen in kind of context that especially if they are in a in a business that's sort of very water intensive so i mean a great example of that is if you are a bottler of soft drinks or water in a water scarce area there would be certain sort of views potentially attached to your business um so water stewardship is really about helping to make the business and its value chain much stronger much more resilient and really sort of addressing the issues in the regions in which it operates so that you know it is playing its role as a water steward so in terms of implementing you know water stewardship practices there are various different things that businesses can do the first one is to really understand and manage their water related risks associated with their business and their value chain there is, of course, the opportunity to reduce operational costs through thinking about efficiencies. And there's also the opportunity to kind of really capitalize on new markets and new business opportunities that can be presented. And also to kind of boost productivity and, and talent recruitment, because what we're seeing is, you know, a lot of people who are, you know, coming into industry such as this, sort of an environmental or ESG or sustainability slant, they want to work for businesses that are not only talking about doing the right thing, but are actually doing the doing as well. 
maybe a quick aside. I mean, one thing that we've certainly seen on the carbon front is this real awakening within the investor community. And I'm curious, are you seeing that on the water side as well in terms of an understanding of that long-term value risk that's built into some of these? I'll kick things off there. I think probably as people that are all passionate about water, probably not as much as we would like. Businesses on the whole don't quite seem to understand water as well as they do carbon. And that's probably a reflection of the fact that it's a far more complex topic, because if you think about what are the water risks, and this is something that Therese put across really well in talking about the context based water targets is the water risks and the opportunities and your exposure and what is required to address those sort of you know mitigate those risks and to be a good steward of those water resources is different in every single location there are no two locations that are the same so you know there's a great deal of context that sort of needs to be put around thinking about water and where your business and its value chain resides and it's taken businesses probably over 20 years to understand carbon and this is a little bit more complex so they're not quite there yet but we are starting to see there are some very forward thinking and doing businesses that are are really starting to get to grips with this and de-risk their businesses and really kind of capitalize on some kind of great opportunities as well that certainly seems like one of those spots that will be very slow and then all at once as we've experienced in other spots and maybe on that, like other spots in the sustainability piece, how does water fit with some of those other key areas? And I know Dave, biodiversity is one of your interests here. Maybe you could help unpack that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. So biodiversity is interesting. It's a little bit, I think, of a chicken or an egg type situation here too, right? So you need water for certain ecosystems that support a variety of biodiversity. So that's water's the critical component there but also you need thriving ecosystems and biodiversity to support clean water. We talk a lot about ecosystem services in our water stewardship practice. So that's basically healthy ecosystems, mainly using wetlands as an example, that basically slow water down, release it downstream to users kind of not all at once, but they'll they'll slow flows. And in the process, they'll filter that water remove pollutants and provide cleaner water downstream than is coming upstream. So we talk a lot about that and basically nature-based solutions. So that natural process, what is increasingly common in water stewardship is kind of mimicking these natural processes like wetlands to build projects that mimic these systems and support biodiversity and also provide multiple benefits. And just so I understand it, is the tendency or the trends towards trying to protect the existing natural ecosystems or to, as you said, try to mimic or recreate those where they didn't exist before or maybe had existed in the past and bring them back up to speed? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so both. And we have land managers that are looking at protecting large swaths of critical ecosystems and Basically, ecosystems are becoming more and more important with land use decisions. So you're looking at valuing what nature provides and then making informed decisions on that front. And on the other hand, you're also looking at engineering and mimicking some of these natural processes for an end result of clean water and water supply demands. It's both at this point. Oh, great. And 
Teresa, I know we've had some conversations in the past about the kind of energy water nexus. And I feel like that's another spot that seems to be a lot of overlap between kind of these two worlds, if you will. Yep, the energy water food nexus definitely plays very well into that nature-based solutions discussion as well. So basically what, what that means is, you know, it takes a lot of energy to move and pump water and that has associated carbon emissions. And so there's actually a quote that's used a lot in the water stewardship world. It's, if climate change is a shark, then water is its teeth. And so basically what that means is climate change is primarily felt through a change in water with disruptions in weather patterns leading to extreme weather events and unpredictable water availability. And this exasperates water scarcity and contaminates water supplies. So all of those issues are inextricably linked. And if you work on those nature-based solutions with a focus on water, you're going to get energy and emissions benefits as a result in addition to improving, you know, biodiversity and land impacts as well. And do you see it going the other way as well? Like for organizations that are setting net zero carbon targets, does that have a positive implication on kind of water consumption as well? Or you know, do you see those potentially in conflict as we've seen maybe with the circularity space? I mean, there's some areas where it could be in conflict. So for example, if you were to switch to dry air cooling, that would lower your water usage, but increase your water consumption. But I'd say in most cases, the benefits are in favor of both. So renewables, for example, have a very low water footprint. Regenerative ag processes definitely contribute to I volumetric water benefits, but also significantly reduce emissions. So a little bit of both, but I'd say in general, there's more of a favor of mutually beneficial impacts. Right. Well, something encouraging to take out of it. So thank you. I'll look for any positive piece I can find. <laughs> and then Chris, I know you've talked in the past about kind of the social impacts and how that cascades through the supply chain. Do you want to share a bit on that? So, I mean, access to sufficient clean water is not one that is currently kind of very equitable in the world. And there are large swathes of populations in Southern Asia, Africa, parts of the Middle East, just to name a handful of areas where people don't have access to adequate water in terms of quantity and quality. And without access to this water, people can become sort of locked in poverty for generations. Children, their attendance at school suffers because they contract various different illnesses that they've picked up through unclean water. So they'll be missing parts of their education and members of the family may have to take time off to care for them. So you can start to see how this can kind of, you know, just spiral through a family and then you upscale that sort of like a community and towns, villages and whole countries even, you know, I'm sure there are we had time to sort of sit down and kind of pick through it you could find whole countries in Africa where GDP has been severely kind of reduced because of access to insufficient water of quality and quantity but to come back I suppose a bit more the social side and put some of what I've said into context that you know people sometimes have to travel miles each day to be able to access water and it's been estimated that families in various parts of the world spend an estimated in total 200 million hours a day carrying water from its source back to their homes for use and you think about how that time could be put to more productive purposes if there was better access to water so on the face of it it might not seem like there was this link between 
social consequences, but it's there and it's sort of clear for all to see. And I suppose on, on sort of the other side, and this talks to a little bit more about what we talked about earlier in the podcast and this reputational risk. And there was a great example. There was a very large soft drinks manufacturer operating in India. And shortly after it began operating, the farmers in the local community started noticing that, you know, they weren't getting quite as much water out their wells as they used to. And the water that was coming up was very heavily kind of laden with sediment. And eventually they stopped getting water out of these wells and they had to dig their wells deeper and deeper. And what was happening is that this soft drinks manufacturer was basically depleting the local groundwater resources. And it got to such a point that essentially the farmers protested to such a degree that the local government closed down that bottling plant because it was depleting the groundwater at an unsustainable rate. It was meaning that the farmers couldn't grow their food to sustain themselves. And then there were social consequences from that. So hopefully that provides an example of how all these sort of things are interlinked and kind of drive one another. Yeah, fascinating. And I know you'd also talked in the past about supply chain and where this can show up in that. Do you want to spend a minute or two just on what are some of the key considerations there? Yeah. So what we'll do is just focus on agriculture, given that it uses 70% of water consumption comes from irrigation. It's important to think about this in terms of of agriculture uses a fantastic amount of water and it also uses a fantastic amount of energy to move that water around as well. So it's important that when we're thinking about businesses, uh, especially food retailers, food manufacturers, right through to those farmers that, you know, they really do think about water and what can be done to ensure that it's used most efficiently and at the right times as well. So there's an awful lot that we could kind of go into in that area. So, you know, there's that focus on irrigation efficiency, irrigation timing, and then, you know, also thinking about where do you actually source your products from? Is it from a water scarce region? And is it the right thing for your business to do to think, okay, we're we're sourcing from a water scarce or water stressed region. Should we be trying to support, you know, the farmers and the growers and the communities there to restore the water resources in that region? Or is it actually better to source from a different region where water resources are not under so much pressure? I don't know what the answer is. I think it will be different for different organisations in different settings. But I think it just talks to one of the many challenges that various actors involved in agriculture and food production need to be aware of and get on top of in terms of thinking about water. Yeah, that's a good way to maybe wrap that up in terms of the many challenges you all have, I think, illuminated some of the complexity tied into this. And I know we're just touching the surface of so many of these critical conversations that need to happen. But maybe a last question for you all is, there's one thing you want people to think about in terms of water or to do around water and water stewardship. What would you say or convey? Yeah. I think if there's one important take home, it's just understand where you get your water from and understand the basics of the watershed you're in. I think that's the most important thing to taking action on water and to really understanding just your footprint personally, how you make decisions. For example, do I buy local produce? Do I go to the grocery store and understand that some of my produce or some of my some of my consumption is coming from water scarce regions. I think just understanding at a minimum where you get your water from and then having that curiosity is really important. I live in a small town in California, Ojai, 
which has a local water supply. So basically the last watershed in California, that's completely local. So there's one reservoir, that's where all the water comes from. Everybody knows about it. Everybody knows it's super low and people make decisions based on that. It's in the news, there's reservoir levels in the news. And I think it's pretty rare in contrast to a city like LA where you get your water from a multitude of sources and you don't really understand that connection. So I think understanding is, is my takeaway. I will take that as a personal action because I couldn't answer you where our water is coming from at the moment. So that's, that's helpful. Yeah, Trace. So I would say engaging stakeholders and taking action at a local level. So over the past decade or so, I think the focus has been on water footprinting and accounting and risk assessment and reporting, which is great. It helped develop a very much needed education on how to approach these like often tricky issues. But now I think that the focus really needs to start to shift towards action and implementation of some of these water risk restoration programs at a local level. And I think the the big thing that has shifted within the last two years is that more and more companies are focused on water these days, especially because of the success of the science-based targets for emissions. That's the success that we've seen there has really generated additional interest in water stewardship and seeing how that same approach could be applied to water. Great. And then final thoughts from you, Chris? Yeah, I think what I would sort of try and leave our listeners with sort of thinking about either in terms of their own lives or, you know, their businesses is just think about it's not a one-way street with water. You need to think about how the water situation where you are affects you and your business and how that may change over time but also how you and your business also have an influence and an effect on the water resources in your region and think about how does that tie in with the other water users in your catchment or watershed so it's a two-way street so you need to think about it from both perspectives you may have listened to this and thought water isn't a particularly high priority for you know me or my business Try running your business for a day or two without it and see what happens. And then get back to us and let us know how it went. (laughs) That sounds pretty ominous, but I think very motivating. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you all so much for joining and sharing your thoughts on this. So many additional conversations to have. I really appreciate this overview and hope you enjoy World Water Day. Brilliant. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. For more information on water, water stewardship, and World Water Day, we'll provide links to the topic page on the anthesisgroup.com and the World Water Day webpage. We can all be reached at first.lastname at anthesisgroup.com and would love for your thoughts and feedback. Again, our thoughts are with all of you in the world, and we certainly hope for peace. Stay safe and take care.